News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, pretty much everyone has found the last year and a half to be stressful, right? I mean, for adults, it's, you know, worrying about your jobs or paying mortgage, rent, groceries, bills. And for children, it's been challenging as well. They worry about their families. Their school life has been completely different. They haven't been able to do their organized activities or see and socialize with all their friends. That's hard on kids. So as we move into something that looks more like regular life, we're left to wonder about the lingering impacts of all of those things. A new poll by Abacus Data out this morning shows us that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to helping children deal with the effects of the pandemic. Some of the results they found here, 62% of parents say the pandemic has made mental health challenges worse for their children. 48% of them say that it introduced new mental health challenges for their kids that did not exist before COVID-19. And they expect to be dealing with this for some time. So this poll was commissioned by members of the Inspiring Healthy Futures Initiative. This is led by UNICEF Canada, Children's Healthcare Canada, Pediatric Chairs of Canada. So we thought, let's talk more about this and talk about putting kids at the heart of COVID-19 recovery. Lisa Wolf joins us now, the Director of Policy and Research for UNICEF Canada. Lisa, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Were you, when you look at this poll, are there things in there that concern you? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the numbers that you've shared um, with our audience may surprise those of us who thought that adjusting to this long pandemic is getting easier for kids. And we've been hearing about a drop in children's mental health and well-being from surveys and medical experts and young people themselves since the onset of the pandemic. But the sheer number of children that parents are worried about now is larger than earlier in the pandemic. And it's just been heaping adversity onto kids and families, as you noted, in virtually every aspect of life, on top of poverty and discrimination that were already a burden for some. And really, the longer and more disruptive the pandemic is, the more the impacts are piling up. Do we know what that kind of looks like? Do we know, like, can we, if a parent hadn't, you know, thought too much about this, but maybe they noticed their child is behaving differently, what does that look like? Well, it can range from trouble with coping with daily life, like outbursts and, you know, changes in personality being withdrawn, uh, to eating disorders and even suicide ideation. Um, You know, concerns that we heard in our survey from parents are really matching what we're seeing in children's hospitals across the country, record numbers of, of kids visiting the hospital with mental concerns you know, families that never had to experience this turmoil before. One of the things I found sad in this poll is that the majority of parents expect longer-term residual effects on the, of the pandemic on their children's mental health. I mean, that's awful to think that we, we know we're going to be dealing with this in the years ahead. So what do we do? Yeah, I mean, I, I hold on to some good news in the survey that um, one in four parents does believe their child will bounce back as the health crisis lightens. Uh, But yes, the majority we surveyed are worried about lasting effects. Um, The fact is we don't fully understand the impacts that the pandemic is going to have across different aspects of of young lives for how long, how wide the inequalities are going to be. But we have to act now based on what we do know instead of waiting and hoping for the best. And 
um, you know, as many Canadians are starting to see light at the end of a long tunnel, um, the health crisis as it recedes is, is going to leave us with a children's crisis that we can lighten if we really make children our priority now. Okay, so what does that look like? How do we do this? Well, you know, I, I go back to the, uh, the survey and what parents are saying um, that they need now as a start. Um, they have very clear priorities uh, for the road to recovery. You know, almost 8 out of 10 say they need adequate resources for child and youth mental health supports. Uh, no surprise when you hear the, you know, the data that, um, that we've been talking about. But 71%, so, you know, close to two-thirds, simply want youth programs and community supports restored and open again. So many of them were closed, shuttered, decimated even um, during the restrictions. And these are natural supports, you know, inside and outside schools that help young people manage their mental health and build relationships, um, have some cultural connections. And and so that's, you know, that's something that we can see immediately. And over the summer, we need to get those things back and back when, when kids go to school in the fall. And finally, um, 70% of parents are saying they, they need income support. And there is a real risk that child poverty uh, is going to uh, rise again. And so, you know, help to alleviate family stress through, through income support is something we're going to have to pay attention to. Also, I mean, for parents, too, we, should, we shouldn't just assume, right, that kids want to go back to doing everything that they were doing before. No, I think, you know, like everything about this pandemic, it's, uh, it's an opportunity to reflect on the things, um, you know, that, that need to change, things we, we want to keep. And we, we know before the pandemic, all was not well with our kids. Um, Canada has some of the poorest outcomes for kids in terms of health, including mental health, among rich countries, and a really high level of uh, pressure that kids were reporting to succeed at school. Um, school was, for, for many, a difficult place before that. So when, when they return to school in the fall, and, you know, we hope that every school in Canada is open to in-person learning, it, it's going to be not just a focus on learning recovery, but making sure that that schools are welcoming and kind places as kids are dealing with these these challenges. Okay, so a lot of work to do then. Is it going to differ as well, Lisa, do you think, from province to province? Because, you know, some provinces were able to keep kids in school, like here in BC. Other provinces didn't, and I feel like those, there's going to be issues around that. Yes, there are going to be you know, varying issues across the country and certainly, you know, at the individual level, different kids will have different um, challenges and needs and that, that will be difficult. But what we're seeing is, yes, I mean, places like BC that kept schools open as far as possible, um, you know, that is a big boost to, to kids. But we've seen, you know, Quebec devote resources for uh, extra mentoring for kids to catch up on their learning journey and streamline the process uh, for kids getting help with special needs. We've seen Prince Edward Island revise its curriculum, uh, the whole curriculum, and being really nimble in that area is, is difficult for schools, but it's possible and it, it, it takes investment. But it's time that we put our kids, you know, at the top of the list now. Well, this is a good reminder of that. Lisa, thanks for your time this morning.
Thank you very much, Amy. Lisa Wolf is a director of policy and research for UNICEF Canada. They've got a poll out with Abacus Data this morning talking about kids and the, and the mental health of children during this pandemic. 62% of parents say the pandemic has made mental health challenges worse for their children. Majority of parents also say they expect longer-term residual effects of the pandemic on their children's mental health. And only a quarter of parents say they have received enough support from governments during the pandemic. And the vast majority would like to see more, essentially, policy ideas and solutions to talk about child and youth mental health and well-being. You know, we'll be talking more about that, especially that school situation, too. This is Mornings with Simi. Some shockingly high numbers when it comes to our other public health emergency in this province, that is the opioid overdose crisis. We now know that more than one million kits that contain the life-saving medication naloxone, which is used to reverse opioid overdoses, have been shipped throughout the province since 2012. That is a huge number. It's all part of the program that they were trying to make naloxone more accessible to help prevent some of these overdose deaths. We know that just last year alone, in 2020, a record 272,000 naloxone kits were shipped all over B.C., And, you know, according to the BC Centre for Disease Control, that all of that naloxone out there averted more than 3,000 deaths between January of 2015 and March of 2021. But yet we still know people are dying and we're still shipping naloxone kits. Uh, Let's talk about this now with the help of Sheila Malcolmson, who's the BC Minister for Mental Health and Addiction. Thank you for joining us this morning. Morning, Simi. Thanks for the invitation. Why is it that, you know, we think we're doing like lots by sending out these naloxone kits, but it doesn't seem to be doing enough? You are right. This is a terrible crisis that we're in. You know, evidenced by, you know, it was 10 years ago that naloxone started to get used as a way to to reverse overdose deaths, um, sort of reduce, reduce overdoses, but... Um, this is a crisis that is taking such an all-hands-on-deck approach. You know, reversing an overdose is one thing, but we want to prevent overdoses in the first place. And, and we want to navigate people to the treatment that they need. And so as a government and as all these fantastic frontline organizations are trying to do, we're trying to hit this toxic drug crisis on all fronts. Naloxone is one of many tools that is being used. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. You talk about offering treatment. I was thinking, you know, you have a heart attack and you're immediately into the healthcare system with follow-up treatment and clinics and all sorts of advice and help, right? But if you have an overdose, it just feels like you get let out of the hospital and then the same thing could happen again. You know, we've got absolutely emergency rooms that are using those opportunities when there is an overdose to connect people with care. Those conversations happen every day. Um, you know, sometimes you know, sometimes people don't want to take, you know, the treatment bed or else they say, I'm interested, but then there's a waiting list. You know, so there is so much work that we're doing as a province every day to try to build up that system so that people don't fall between the cracks. And in the meantime, uh, you know, people are being offered uh, prescribed safer supply so that they don't have to rely on illicit street drugs. Um, that's expanded enormously in British Columbia. We've got a lot more runway and more to do. 
Uh, we've got a huge increase in the number of people that are being prescribed medication-assisted treatment uh, and very grateful to all the new clinicians. There are almost 1,700 of them across the province that are prescribing that medication-assisted treatment uh, up from uh, just 700 plus in 2017. Uh, that includes nurse prescribers, the only place in Canada that nurses can prescribe medication-assisted treatment for people. Um, we've doubled the number of overdose prevention sites, uh, which means people can go in and if they do end up getting into a, a um, drug that is more toxic, um, more strong than they anticipated, they've got people right there uh, ready to, uh, to reverse an overdose. Um, and then also drug testing at those sites so that people can avoid taking a drug that's too strong or too toxic mm -hmm. in the first place and building out more treatment beds. And yet we continue to lose five plus British Columbians every day. It's um, heartbreaking and it's unacceptable. Yeah, I was thinking that as you were describing and I thought, and yet we know the numbers are still kind of record breaking, which is awful. So then what do what more do we need to do? What is on your list of, okay, what is the next step that we have to take here to try to make a dent in this? Um, so expanding all of those pieces, you know, continuing to to expand access to naloxone, continuing to encourage people to step up and get trained. Very grateful to the huge surge of British Columbians who have done that. And if people are interested in either getting a naloxone kit or, or getting connected with training, uh, the website that's up associated with this, uh, this uh, campaign and release this week, towardtheheart.com, is just an excellent source. Uh, we're continuing to expand supervised consumption sites. We've got a new wave of access to safe supply, some new policy guidance that's going to be coming out in the next month or so. That's been a real work in progress, and I know a lot of people are, are eager to hear more about that. Um, building up more treatment beds, we added 100 uh, early this year. We're doubling the number of youth treatment and recovery beds, and we just committed in the budget to add another almost 200. And we need more, absolutely, but that's a continued expansion. And, and at the um, kind of overall prevention side of things, uh, we're uh, encouraging, working hard uh, to get the federal government to decriminalize small amounts of illicit su uh, drug supply as a way to combat those feelings of, of shame and embarrassment that make people use alone because the people that use alone are the ones that are most likely to die from from drug toxicity um, and and remove that barrier of that stigma composed to having people be able to have a, a totally open conversation with their family or with their healthcare provider to be able to get them connected to treatment or prescribed safe supply. Yeah, I feel like that one is still such a huge thing, right? People who use by themselves and that the family, their friends don't don't even know. 100%. You know, and the coroner tells us this every month that the majority of people who are dying to this drug toxicity crisis are people with their own homes, people with jobs, but they're always people using alone. You know, I think we sometimes have an idea that this is uh, open street use. It's, it's not. It's, uh, it's people who, you know, it's like one thing to say, you know, I'm, to your family, I'm going downstairs to, you know, have a beer and watch the hockey game, you know, and then everybody else in the house goes to bed and, you know, there 
when someone kind of disappears into a corner of the family home um, to use a potentially toxic drug, it can be life-ending. And I hear in Nanaimo, where I'm elected, I hear firefighters just tell tragic stories of how many calls they get sent out to where it's too late because the person used alone and died alone. So more than anything, we want people to know if you have addiction challenges, uh, that is a healthcare problem. It's not a criminal justice problem. We mm-hmm. want you to feel good about coming forward and asking for help and know as a government, although we've got so much more work to do, uh, we've been working hard and we're continuing to expand that access to care and treatment so that you can get connected with with the health care support that you need. All right. Well, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks to everybody that's working on the front line. This is, and all the families that have lost loved ones. This is such a hard time. And, and I really appreciate you lifting the lid, uh, Simi, on some of these conversations. Well, thank you. That is Sheila Malcolmson, BC Minister for Mental Health and Addiction. Boy, that emphasis on... You know, people using by themselves, friends, family members who don't even know, people who are hiding those addictions, they're fully functioning out there with jobs, you know, the whole thing. Uh, That, I don't know how we tackle that, because that also seems to be right at the heart of this opioid overdose uh, pandemic that we have here, or epidemic we have here. This is Mornings with Simi. So UBC is holding a national forum this week. It's happening June 10th and 11th, and they're doing this to address the issue of anti-Asian racism. Our Raji Sohal is back with us to talk more about this. Raji, it sounds like like from that poll we were just talking about, there is some work to do here. Yeah, there is some work to do. The In general, the poll showed that racism has gone up, as we've been hearing from other reports in the last year, too, but that there's also been some progress. Notably, I would say, Simi, the thing that stuck out for me is that there's still lots of denial, just a lot of people who don't um, really believe what's going on for Asians and, uh, in general, a belief that uh, things aren't going to be solved soon. But I talked to UBC President Dr. Santa Ono about it all. He's personally involved at a national level, um, and he's going to be participating in this two-day Canada-wide symposium on addressing anti-Asian racism this week. Um, He's also been attending a series of listening sessions at UBC and listening to students themselves and hearing what's going on for them, and a lot of students are coming forward for the first time. It is really hard to hear about uh, how students feel. Um, Many of them have been afraid to, to leave their homes but uh, many students tell me about how they've uh, uh, felt on buses, um, just walking around downtown. One of our students was outside of H Mart. We have an H Mart on campus and was actually uh, punched uh, on our campus. And I, myself, I, my family, were walking around Falls, Falls Creek on one of these beautiful days. And we, were, we had a lovely day until we started to make our way towards our car. And um, my family and I were, were yelled at. Um, that we were told to, to get out of here, uh, that we don't belong, that we're garbage. And so not only are students and faculty experiencing anti-Asian racism, I am as well. What did you do in that instance? First of all, we were all shocked. We were looking around, are they talking to us? Um, I was with my daughter. So, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't say anything because the, 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 the person who was uh, saying those things uh, was uh, was was older, a senior individual, and I, out of respect for that person's uh, seniority. Uh, I did not want to escalate uh, the situation, but certainly did not make us feel welcome uh, as Canadians here in Vancouver. Well, that's terrible, Raji. Yeah. 
I was really surprised to hear that story. Um, this is a man who is Japanese-Canadian, highly accomplished, prestigious background. But you know what, Simi? That should not even matter. His accomplishments should not matter. What matters is that he's human. He and his family have every right to feel like they belong here in Canada. And I just wondered, um, and I posed this question to Dr. Santa Ono, how does change make its way from like a forum that's being held in an institution like a university, right? Um, that's being organized by them. How does a forum and in the ideas that they're going to come up with this week, how does that trickle down to regular folks changing their understanding and behavior? The, the wonderful thing is that uh, we have people coming from almost every political party in Canada. Uh, and many of them have come forward saying they want to be part of it. You may uh, recall that in the Okanagan, we had a student that on a wellness check was actually dragged across the apartment floor. And there was an outrage. Uh, what I'm very, very pleased that the RCMP said to me, we want to be part of this. We have to be part of the solution. So the National Forum hopefully will have thousands of people attending. But those thousands of people will be talking to circles of friends. And the fact that it's, it's a multi-sectoral is, is designed in such a way that the, the message will actually percolate out uh, into many different parts of society. So um, that's how the word will get out. That's Dr. Santa Ono, the head of UBC, and he's talking about how the what they're discussing at the forum this week is going to trickle down to regular folks. And Simi, it's really like it is dinner conversations. It's having a chat with your colleague if someone's been out of line and has said something that's racist. We all kind of have to do this work. And on the second day of the forum, they're actually going to come up with a set of recommendations that leads to policy change. And they want to make this symposium count past just a two-day event. And Dr. Santa Ono reminded me that progress is happening, even when it feels slow. If you back up and you look at the overall trajectory, it, it is happening. Joy Kogawa was at uh, my installation as president. And she talked about how in her lifetime, in the period of 50 years, we've gone from the despised to the to the uh, celebrated, from those who, who had uh, no presence on, on the UBC campus, as you know, during internment, uh, many of my uh, predecessors had to leave abruptly uh, UBC. But we went from that to actually having a Japanese Canadian president. And I think that means a lot. Uh, and I, I have to tell you, I feel very supported at every level. At the federal level, I feel supported by the prime minister, by the premier, by ministers in both Ottawa and in Victoria. So I am optimistic. If you, if you just look at my life, and I'm 58 years old, the change from when I was born to today is, is, is remarkable. But we have more distance to travel, but I believe that we will because of the goodwill of all these leaders. Oh, see, I love that, like that positive note that he can still feel that. It's so important to remind ourselves of that, that, you know, even in the light of, this, for example, the tragic event that we heard of in London, Ontario, um, in light of all the anti-Asian racism that there's been, there are more people fighting um, racism than ever before, right? Yeah. There are more people fighting for equality, and we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. We are progressing. Well, we are making progress. Well, that's good to know. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, Canadians have been opening their eyes over the last week or so, learning more and more about the residential school system and the horrible impact it has had. How do we make permanent changes here? One of the ways is with representation. And now the head of the Canadian Bar Association says, you know what, law firms need to step up here too, need to hire more Indigenous lawyers. Bradley Regeer joins us now, the president of the Canadian Bar Association. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Timmy. Happy to be here. Well, how has that call gone over? What have you heard? Uh, Well, I haven't really heard uh, in terms of my call, but my call is based on um, the the desire, you know, the, uh, of law firms that who, who are committed to um, uh, equity, diversity, inclusivity, and, and certainly um, really want information and advice in terms of how they do this. Um, it, it's, uh, we've had a pretty positive response. Okay, well, that's good to know. So how, how big of a hill is this to climb then, Bradley? Like when it comes to hiring Indigenous lawyers, you know, among law firms, what kind of representation is there right now? Well, uh, you know, our, our position has always been that we need to be re- reflective of the society that we're in. And so while there are certainly Indigenous people who are lawyers, uh, who are judges, um, uh, it's certainly not at the numbers you know, that represent the percentage of the population. Um, out where I am here in Manitoba, I think Indigenous people are making up close to 15% of the population of the province. Um, we do not reflect 15% of the, of the profession here or judges. So there's still a lot of work to do, um, you know, to, to increase those numbers. And how do we do that? Well, I think... Um, you know, law firms uh, need to look at and, and the profession needs to look at um, what barriers there are for um, Indigenous peoples to get into the profession, to get into, you know, whether it's private practice or working in public service as a lawyer. Um, you know, one of the things that people have to look at is their own hiring practices. Do they have inherent biases? And, and I think we all have inherent biases, um, but you need to be able to identify them and address them. <clears throat> and how you deal with them, uh, because there's always a tendency to want to be with people who are like you. Um, so, uh, you know, the law firms need to address that in their hiring practices. That, that's probably one of the biggest, biggest things, but you could also look at uh, corporations and even the public service. But I, I think there's probably been more effort made there um, uh, than, say, in, in, right. in, uh, in private practice. So. Well, I think you're right there. I think a lot of corporations and law firms and companies could listen to that message for sure. Bradley, thank you for your time on that this morning. Thank you. That's Bradley Regeer, president of the Canadian Bar Association, calling on law firms to, well, do more, to hire uh, Indigenous lawyers, get more representation. As he's saying in Manitoba alone, 15% of the population is Indigenous. That is not reflected in the legal community. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, we are talking about food insecurity all this week on the show. We're trying to raise awareness and help the United Way as they are fundraising for more of their community hubs, meaning they're trying to get out into these different community neighborhoods and help not just with food insecurity issues as well, but also talking to people about the different types of help that they need uh, to thrive in their communities. Now, for more on that, some of the challenges faced by doing that, uh, Jillian Durr joins us now a food justice coordinator for Collingwood Renfrew Neighborhood House. Jillian, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, tell me about your job, though. First of all, what is a food justice coordinator? Yeah, of course. So I am the food justice coordinator for Renfrew Collingwood Food Justice, which is a program that runs out of Collingwood Neighborhood House. And I kind of organize and manage all of the food programs. So that includes community gardens, um, bringing together people for community kitchens, community lunches. Um, and most recently in the pandemic, uh, we've been really working with uh, tightly with the United Way um, to support their food hubs initiative um, as one of their distributors. Um, Um, and doing direct distribution of um, food hampers to uh, members of our community um, in need during this time. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the type of food, too, that gets distributed. Because, you know, when you stop and think about it, not everybody wants to eat the same things, or not everybody is even used to eating the same things. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's a really important point when we talk about food distribution. We want to be able to give folks food with dignity and we want to be able to give folks food that they their bodies are able to digest and feel comfortable for um, their cultural practices. So something that has been really amazing with what the United Way has been doing during this pandemic is getting into the communities and finding community leaders like Renfrew Collingwood Food Justice and and Collingwood Neighborhood House um, who know our community members and what our community members need to eat and feel nourished. Cultural food Foods are often largely underrepresented in the current model of addressing food insecurity. It's kind of a one-size-fits-all approach of you get what you get and you don't get upset um, and um, you show up to the food bank and whatever people give you is what you should expect and be grateful for. But we know that people eat differently and food is not just about the calories in. It's also about the feeling that you get from food, the ability to be together and gather around food that feels comfortable um, and a way to share cultural traditions as well through the food that we eat and how we eat it. Um, So we're hoping that with uh, continued support from the United Way and continued support from all of these community members that we can continue to um, support our community through foods that are familiar to them culturally as well as foods that support them. So in what, terms of caloric need. <laughs> right. So what does that look like then? Because I know that people are used to like, oh, if I'm going to donate mm-hmm. food, they need pasta, they need beans, they need mm-hmm. tomato sauce. But obviously, we're talking about different types of food here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most important things that can support that right now is uh, giving directly um, in terms of monetary donations to the United Way to support their food hubs work. Um, because at the end of the day, 
the people in the community. So us at Renfrew Collingwood Food Justice that are embedded within our community know what our community members need. So that's listening to the folks who access our direct distribution programs um, and making sure, you know, for example, having lots of Asian veggies. Our our community is largely um, East and Southeast Asian. um, So making sure there are a lot of greens that are familiar, like yu choy, choy sum, um, daikon radishes. um, And so it's really important to give direct monetary support um, in order for us to make that. Yeah, Jillian, where can people find out more about that? Um, People can find out more about uh, the Food Hubs on United Way's website um, and donate there. Um, You can also, we have a website um, at CNH, uh, cnh cnh.bc.ca, if you'd like to find out more there. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for telling us about it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.